Welcome to Season 2 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unbox, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 33, Century Spice Road. Today, we are joined by Emerson Matsuchi. The designer of Century Spice Road, Century Eastern Wonders, A New World, The Gollum Editions, Reef, Foundations of Rome, and gosh, so many more. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So just to get us started, how did you get into the gaming industry? Uh, let's see. It's I was, um, I've always dabbled in games, so ever since I was young, I always liked the idea of designing games. And I even attempted to design a few um, when I was really young. Uh, I didn't actually start to design at a more um, more professional capacity until much more recently. Uh, so probably back in 2012, which I guess is like a decade now. Um, so I guess it's, it has been a while. But that was the time that I actually was uh, earnestly trying to um, design games uh, more in a serious capacity. So, and I started with something something small. I decided to start with a, a small little card game. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a Halloween Halloween themed card game, the the holiday, not the movie. Um, but it was it was like a stepping stone, and I've just been kind of um, pursuing it since then. What made you think you wanted to do game design? Oh, I, I knew that since I was uh, since I was young. So uh, even when I was going through college and um, out in the working world, uh, even while climbing the corporate ladder, uh, it always in the not just in the back of my mind, but also like when I had some spare time, I always had a little notebook and I would always put my game design notes in there. Uh, sometimes if I was if I had a little bit more time during lunch break or uh, if there was um, some quiet time at work, I would break uh, open up that notebook and just jot down a few notes. Uh, then I would come back home and uh, just start working on card templates and things like that. And this was before I started to like really pursue it uh, as more of a career. That's so cool. I know I carry around a notebook with me at all times, but like even when I was a little kid, I would doodle on stuff, mostly cardboard that we had left over. Totally feel that. Yeah. So then... We go over to Century Spice Road. For anyone who doesn't know the game, would you mind just kind of explaining how it's played? Okay, so Century Spice Road is a it's a family weight Euro style game. Uh, the objective, uh, like many games in this category, is to get the most points. Uh, there are two rows of cards. Uh, the bottom row is a series of cards that will allow you to trade for different types of resources. And there's four resources in the game. Um, and they're all themed around spices. Uh, and then the upper row is a row where you can turn those spices in uh, in exchange for victory points. Uh the bottom row is uh, interesting in that uh, almost each card will give you a positive exchange, meaning that you're going to get more than what you started with. So, and the the interesting decisions in that game is what cards you pick up and when to play them. 
So it's uh, there's only four rules in the game. Uh, the rule book is just it's a rule sheet actually. It's just one page, double sided. Honestly, your game was so easy to teach all of my friends. And fun fact, my one friend renamed it just drugs. He's like, I want to play the drug game. I'm like, oh my god, dude, <laughs> there's spices. <laughs> and he's like, I mean, agree to disagree. And I was like, oh gosh, but they're obsessed. Yeah. I I'm, yeah. I'm always going at uh, retheming games. So if you find um, a theme that you, that you find really appealing, yeah, I think it's I think it's great to um, take uh, an existing game and just kind of like retheme it. Is that how that the enjoy. Gollum editions became a thing? You're just like, oh, you know, it'd be really cool. Let's switch <laughs> out the artwork and do this. That's a great segue. Yes, it was. Um, it was one of those cases where there was more than one theme that we wanted to pursue. And so they were both born. So how close were they born? Was it just like, hey, we like both these themes? Or was it a year later after it was out? Like, how do you decide to do that? And were there any differences between the editions beyond the artwork and just like a little bit of like the components? So the the two themes, um, they actually came about right around the same time. Well, when I presented my prototype, uh, my prototype had a spice trading theme to it. Now, uh, prior to that, though, like, yeah, I really enjoy games like Netrunner and uh, Cyberpunk. That that genre, that theme, I really enjoyed. So initially, that it actually had a more of a cyberpunk theme. And you're probably wondering, well, how does that really fit with the mechanics? I know. I was thinking the four elements was going to be like a gear and springs. I don't even know. Like, what would you do? Yeah, so with a cyberpunk theme, uh, because prior to going into game design, I was a programmer, so I was a software developer. So that was, so this type of theme was kind of near and dear to my heart. So the cubes that are in the game actually represented in that uh, version of the prototype, those represented different access levels. So you you had green, yellow, or I believe at that time it was like blue, yellow, green, Gosh, I can't remember the exact ordering. Like red or were, something. Yeah, but red was the highest level. So red was the the highest level axis that you had, and the cards on the bottom row, uh, instead of being called exchange cards, those were your programs. You were running your programs, your hacking programs, in order to get higher level access. So you're trying to break in further into their mainframe system of these mega corporations. And then the top row of cards are you're trading in the security access to be able to get those secret files and download them. So that's how the, the theme worked. And also the game end trigger was also thematic too, because once one player got their fifth or you know in a lower player count game, their sixth card, the whole system goes on shutdown and you only had one round left. So thematically, oh, like wow. I thought of, um, you know, I felt that there was a good um, analog between the mechanics and the theme that I was trying to represent. But the reason I had changed it was that I had uh, some discussions with other game designers um, and other other peers that had mentioned that you know when when you present a game that has a cyberpunk theme, it comes with certain expectations, and that's very very important too is that you want the theme to uh, attract the type of people that are going to enjoy the genre of game that you're presenting. And therefore, I changed it from you know, a cyberpunk theme to a spice trading theme because I felt that the spice trading theme would be one that would appeal to the type of gamer that I was trying to reach. Okay. Very cool. So... And you're probably now wondering, well, where did the Gollum uh, came from? A little bit, yeah. So the Gollum was actually the, um, it was the publisher that wanted to 
pursue a more fantastical theme. Uh, because a game is very, very light in terms of like you know th- thematic coupling, sure. so it wasn't really strongly tied to a very specific theme, or there weren't any mechanisms that were strongly associated with one theme or another. So they wanted to pursue. And by the way, this is Plathead Games that had originally um, wanted to publish this game, and they had an idea for uh, this universe. So, so the the Gullum edition is actually. Um, their brainchild of a universe where they wanted um, they wanted to be able to tell more of a story to it. So uh, I think that the, I think that they did a fantastic job. I was a little skeptical at first when they had mentioned this theme, the setting, uh, but after seeing the artwork and the way they had implemented, I was fully on board with it. That's so interesting. So, do you have a preferred favorite between the two editions? Hmm. I mean, I do like the, the Gollum edition, uh, but I mean, the Spice Road one was actually the theme that I had chosen. And uh, I was very, very thankful that they kept that you know, in, in mind, in consideration, that it was, a, it was a theme that I thought would be the best fit for the type of mechanisms that were in the game. And what made you come up with the mechanism of dropping uh, your spices off as you like get a perceived better card? Like, when did that kind of come in? For the gameplay. Oh, actually, I think that was really there at the at the start that I wanted there to be some kind of a cost uh, because the cards are not valued equally. So, and I thought about what what would be the quickest and most interesting mechanism to um, to put in place to have the players decide uh, what the values of those cards are. Generally, if there's uh, cards of varying values. A lot of games do rely on, say, like an auction system. Uh, in the way that we call it the conveyor belt, among among my peers, we, we call it the conveyor belt system. And But it's also, in a way, it, an auction. Uh, it is a sort of like a turn-based auction where it the values of things will shift from turn to turn. I definitely like the fact that there's certain points where there's the crappy card that's in front, but so many people have passed by it. So there's so many cubes on it. You just can't mm-hmm. knock grab it. Exactly. Yes. I do very much enjoy that mechanic. Yeah. And it's, uh, it fits in with the turn structure that we have. So we want each turn to be, be one decision and also to be quick too. Sure. And then was the game always as streamlined as it currently is? Because I feel like the appeal of your game is it's super easy to teach, but also there's so much strategy that you can do with it. Was it like more clunky or bigger? Like, did it split apart into the future games? Like, how did that all go? Actually, the what you have in the retail version is actually very similar to the initial prototype. Uh, it was balanced, so the cards were valued a little bit closer. Um, and the one omission was the camel cards. We actually had cards that represented camels thematically, but what they did was they expanded your carrying capacity. So in the game, you have a caravan card, which can hold 10 cubes. In the original prototype, it was nine cubes uh, because you started with three camels. Each camel can hold three goods, uh, one on the back and two on uh, one on each side. And then there were camel cards that ex- expanded your carrying capacity by three for each camel card that you took. So, but that was the that was the one that was re- that was the one mechanism that was removed. Otherwise, it's pretty much identical to the original prototype. Wow, that's impressive. I feel like most times through playtesting and developing, it changes a lot. Yeah, the, this one happens to be. Uh, I call this the lightning in the bottle. 
The laying the cubes out uh, onto the cards was also in the initial prototype, as well as the incentives, the coins at the top. Those were also in the original prototype as well. Oh, wow. And so what did playtesting look like for this game? Uh, when I when I had brought it out the, the first time, uh, I mean, I tested it with uh, just some close friends, but then I had brought it to a design group. And when I brought it there, they they said that there was something here that uh, uh, it was it felt like it was a finished product already. And uh, a good friend of mine, Gil Hova, actually tweeted out that you know not only did he play like you know, something that felt like it was done, but I think you know I'm paraphrasing here, but he says this could be like an SDJ contender. Oh wow! You know it's funny because I am also friends with him, so I could totally see him doing that. Yeah. So yeah, if you if you go far back enough, you'll find that tweet. That's so awesome. And so then how did you end up finding a publisher eventually? Uh, uh, that's also another interesting story is that I was actually going to publish this myself. Uh, it was only after I had built a relationship with Plat Hat Games that they were interested in other games that uh, I was designing. Now, at the time, I had basically earmarked anything that was very thematic um, or had more narrative during gameplay. Those were the ones that I was going to be pitching to Plat Hat Games. Since this was clearly like a Euro game and it wasn't something that uh, seemed to fit their catalog, I decided that I was going to publish it under my own brand. And at that time, I was publishing games. And so what made you change your mind? Or did you just like show something else? And then they asked what else you have? How did it work? Yeah, so they asked what was, what are the games I was working on? So I had shown them this and they were very, very excited when they saw it and they wanted to, to publish it. And I initially said, well, this is sort of outside of your typical uh, style of games that you produce. Uh, so then we got into discussing things like you know, having like a different branding to it or having Planet sort of start a family line or a Euro game line of some type. I mean, it was, it was definitely uh, one of those cases where the publisher really wanted to work with me to be able to publish this game. Uh, and then after that, there was a series of acquisitions that, and, and it, the design went from one publisher to another until it finally landed with Plan B. But that was the, the whole story of why I ended up with a publisher rather than me publishing myself. So why, did, like, what were you publishing yourself at the time, and like, what made you decide to go with a different publisher? Um, actually, uh, I started in this industry more as a uh, publisher. I didn't. I actually didn't think that I actually had any talent as a designer. So well, as much as I, <laughs> as much as I, as much as I enjoyed uh, designing, I didn't think I could design because when when I had designed any early games, those were absolutely terrible. But it was it was through the relationship with Pat, Plat Hat that kind of opened the doors to um, to other publishers, opening relationships with other publishers. So it's it's kind of one of those things where um, you know once you have work experience, it's easier to get a, a job in the. In, in an industry. That's very true. It eventually ended up at Plan B, and that's like where it currently is. How, like, what was the journey like for that? Was it just like things fell through or it wasn't a good fit or you had it for X amount of years? Like, tell me more about that. <laughs> so uh, it initially started with a Plat Hat, um, but then Plat Hat was acquired by F2Z Entertainment, which is uh, uh, most known for Z Man products. Uh, and then when it was acquired by uh, Z-Man, it, or yeah, when it was acquired by FTZ Entertainment, Century was actually going, to, well, at that time it was called Caravan. Uh, 
So Caravan was actually going to uh, be branded with Z-Man on it. It, it. Collectively, they felt like it made the most sense because Z-Man had uh, other products in their lines that are, that are similar or it, it fits the audience. So then uh, F2Z Entertainment was acquired by Asmodee. And the former head of F2C Entertainment, uh, uh, Sophie Grebel, had decided to spin off uh, a different company uh, during that acquisition, and that company was Plan B. And we had discussions at that time. Uh, the, the rice had reverted back to me, and I thought I was going to publish this myself again. And that was my, my current plan. But then I had met Sophie, and she had convinced me to partner up with her and have Century be the launch title. It was still called Caravan at the time, but uh, through Plan B, they uh, they had some ambitious plans. They wanted it to not just be one game, but they wanted it to be a series of games. And then they also wanted um, those games to be, uh, quote-unquote, mixable. So that was their terminology that they used, that they wanted to be uh, interconnected games. Okay. So then walk the audience through the future games and how they kind of spun off and how you're able to mix them. Okay. So the uh, obviously, the first game wasn't designed with the intention of being combined. So the other games that followed had to use that as a base of, of mechanisms to use as sort of like a foundation. So the cubes had to remain the same valuations. The core of the game uh, was still revolve around trading. So I, I had sure. to I had to kind of explore um, more of the design space around that to see what are the interesting mechanisms that we could we could come up with. Uh, so it was it was actually a very very long process. The um, the second and especially the third game uh, took quite uh, uh, quite a lot of time in order to come up with those mechanisms and also to make the combinations of games really compelling. So and um, and the reason why that we are, there's absolutely uh, there's not going to be a fourth game is because it gets exponentially more difficult uh, or it will require more. Uh, development time on an exponential curve uh, because the number of combinations starts to explode so we kept it out at the third game which will which you know needs to combine with the first one the second one and the combination of the two so um, yeah so in terms of like the development process all i could say is that it was it was very labor intensive it honestly sounds like it. So what made them call it like kind of, they're standalone games, but you can mix them versus mm-hmm, like fair. making expansions. Mm-hmm. Like what was the thought process there? <laughs> well, the funny story there was, uh, that's what plan B was actually asking for was um, standalone expansions, uh, similar to say like Dominion and how Dominion has you know, standalone expansions that you could play, but you can also um, combine them with other games, right? So you can combine the standalone games together. Or maybe Ascension might be a better example. So I think that's what they had in mind. But I had a different interpretation when they said mixable. So in my mind, I was thinking, oh, we want you know uh, other games in the line, but we want them to be able to combine. So I had, I, because of, I already had an idea for the a follow-up game. And that follow-up game did have like different mechanisms. Like it actually had a proper board that you'll be traversing through. 
And so when they came up with this idea, I had sort of misinterpreted what they were trying to say. And I ended up making games that were mechanically uh, distinct, but also you can combine them. Oh, funny. So did you end up removing that board or did you use it for something else? Oh, the board became modular. So in Eastern Wonders, that's where you get the hex board. Oh, very cool. And how long did it take, would you say, putting those together? Were you trying to aim to like have a new game out every year? What was the plan for all that? Oh, the second game took at least six months of development to get it to um, a decent state. But that third game took a better part of a year and a few months to really nail that one down. Would you mind just walking everyone through like how they combine and what they do and how each of those games are slightly different? Okay. Uh, let's see. The second game uh, has a modular board, and you have a ship and your own little player board, and you are moving from island to island. So the setting is that we are now at the Spice Islands in the Philippines. And as you're moving from uh, point to point or from island to island, on this modular board, you get to leave your outposts behind. And those outposts will allow you to um, trade. Uh, actually, you can trade without the outpost, but the outpost will allow you to get additional points as well as upgrades. So you're heavily incentivized to put your outposts out. They combine with the first game in that you can use the cards, the, the, the first row of cards, the trading cards, as a mechanism to be able to not only use them for their uh, normal uh, abilities, but also you can use them to traverse around the board. So if you wanted to move, say, a spot that was four spaces away, you would you would flip four cards over to their backsides, and that will allow you to do that. But then the, in, the decision, uh, or the interesting decision comes in, do you use them first for their abilities before you flip them over, or do you really want to get to that spot to beat an opponent out? So that's how the first two combine. Uh, yeah. when, when with the third game, the the way that it combines with the first game uh, is that it also uses the cards. Actually, let me explain what the third game is. The third game is a, a worker placement game, uh, but in it does away with the round structure of a typical typical worker placement game. And instead, mm-hmm. on your turn, you're placing one or more workers out onto the board, or you're recalling all of your workers. So there's no there's no particular pause, and it is sort of in line with how the first game works, where you can play cards, but you can also spend one turn to take back all your cards. So it had uh, there was some coherency between between those games, so that it actually has a similar feel or gameplay experience with the first. So, so anyways, with the worker placement um, game, which was the third one, it combines with the first one in that you can use your workers to acquire those cards. But instead of those cards going into your hands, they create your own little personal trade route. And the trade route had its own interesting mechanism where uh, you could place workers uh, onto your own uh, cards. So they basically become worker placement spots. But if you if you wanted to uh, use abilities uh, that were not in a, not in the order that you had placed them, then you it, it would cost you more workers. So you're incentivized to place workers on them in order. But uh, because you know, the cards that the point cards that come out are going to be random, you may want to adjust your plans. And there are abilities to allow you to alter the order of those cards as well. And that's in conjunction with the workers' placement spots that are already present in the base third game. 
Okay. And so do you think of the people Mm -hmm. that own the original game, how many have bought the second and the third? Mm, well, it's <laughs> when I when I look at the royalty reports, there's definitely a, like a diminishing curve. So uh, the so the first game still sold the most. Then it would be the second, and then the third. So I suspect that um, you know uh, my my guess would be that people who had bought the third have probably bought the first two. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you have a favorite out of the three, or is that kind of like choosing a child? Mm, it's well, that one's that one's tough. It I intentionally designed it so that they would um, it would be a series that kind of grows with the gamer. So Century Spice Road is the simplest one. Uh, it is the entry point into the series, so it has the lowest complexity barrier. Uh, and then the other games kind of ramp up that complexity, and especially if you start to combine the games then it really ramps up that cognitive load as you go. So my intention was that each of the games individually introduces you to a different core mechanic. Uh, And then when you combine them all, you're basically um, playing sort of a middle middle or heavyweight Euro game because there's a lot of different moving parts to it, which is typical for these styles of games. That's very cool. And as far as just like working with plan B and going off of this plan that they had, were you happy you made that decision versus just self-publishing? Now that's a really, that's a tough question. Um, because <laughs> some of the folks that I had worked with understood the, the frustrations of trying to develop uh, a game that can uh, not only combine, but also be an enjoyable experience as well. So it's not just a matter of making games and making them combine, but them, but them, um, feeling like they are a cohesive product. So that was always a challenge. And, you know, there were many nights where I would be banging my head up against the wall, just trying to come up with um, the right combinations of mechanics. So it's uh, the third game. um, There was one point, one iteration of it was a tile laying game. So it's, we definitely explored lots and lots of different mechanisms and combinations of mechanisms. So it's it's also a the type of project that I'm not sure if I'd like to do it again, uh, just because of the amount of work that's required. I mean, that's completely fair. It definitely doesn't sound like something I would want to jump on board with immediately. But I mean, you made an amazing product that is spoken about constantly, so that's got to feel great. Oh, that, yeah. There's a there's definitely some payoff there. The amount of work for let's put it this way: the amount of work to the amount of sales that it generates is probably not as high as just the first game. The first game has the highest in terms of that ratio, and it dwindles down. But then, the, as you continue the series, it's more and more work. So it's always something to consider, especially if if I'm doing this as a full-time job, I have to think about the amount of time I put into a project versus the uh, the payout of that project. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And so I guess, like, what was your favorite and your least favorite experience in the journey of all these games? Or if you want to just choose Spice Road, you could do that as well. Well, Spice Road, well, like I mentioned, it was lightning in a bottle. It uh, the, insp- the first prototype... Uh, was almost a complete game, and that is incredibly rare, um, especially for like my designs. Most of my designs just crash and burn uh, at the outset, so uh, most of them take a lot of development work, uh, lots of rework in order to get them to uh, 
any sort of presentable state. So, but the Spice Road was an exception to that. Was that your favorite then? That it was lightning in the bottle and just was great. <laughs> I mean, if I can, if I could repeat that, I would certainly love to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't we all? All right. So then, what was your least favorite of the experience? Oh, it was working on the combinations of games. It was it was long, it was arduous, and it was a lot of frustrating points. Um, but it was because it was a, a challenge. I've, it was something that I haven't done before. Uh, and it was having a, a looming deadline over it that also made it very, very challenging. That being said, I don't want this to come across as it was, it was not um, a great experience working with Plan B. That's definitely not the case at all. So working with the publisher has been a, a phenomenal experience. Uh, the frustration was more that of the just trying to get something that worked really well. And it seemed like you were traversing an endless desert. So if design, if design space was actual space, like actual real estate, yeah, it, it, you're traversing, uh, you're looking for that needle in a haystack. Yeah, honestly, I feel like just the amount of playtesting and development that went into combining these games would have given me a headache. I personally hate developing my own games. I feel like if a designer does something, like give it off to a developer to look at it and like with the designer kind of tapping in. But you can't just have like the one set of eyes, like you get a little burnt out. And so I could only imagine doing that with three. Yeah, I'm, I'm typically not the designer that I will hand off something to a developer um, and and just move on. I, I typically work with the developers. So, so I, I see them as sort of like a partner in the whole design process. Yeah, I, I get that. That makes sense as well. I feel like I wouldn't want to completely pass it off, but there's sometimes where a design is with you for years and you almost, it feels like a kid that just hasn't left for college. And it's like, could you just go please? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the, the way I do it is the correct way or the right way to do it. Uh, it's just my personal preference that I always want to work closely with the developer. Uh, I know designers who do prefer to be able to hand off to uh, the publisher to have them do the, re- the remaining polishing and developing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I just mentioned that as my own personal s- style of working with publishers. And then, so do you have any advice for designers? Like if you could just give one piece of advice on what's going to help them get better in the future, could be related to this game or just anything you've done in your career. Hmm. I- I'm going to try to see if I can come up with an answer that I haven't mentioned um, a, a lot of times it's always around uh, playtesting or design, but for for new designers or designers that are trying to get into the industry, my advice actually would be to just play games, um, play games and find inspiration anywhere. There's lots of places where we, uh, ideas spring up. Um, for me, you know, sometimes some really interesting game ideas uh, come to me at very, very unexpected times. Uh, I'll give an example. For instance, uh, Spectrops, which is uh, the game that I had that that founded that relationship with Playdate Games. Uh, that uh, that game design came from watching an episode of a TV show, a reality TV show called Cops. So yeah. it. So these inspirations can come from anywhere. I completely agree. I've had some weird inspirations for things. Like just, I've seen someone not recycle properly and made a card game out of it. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, Keep a notebook with you uh, if you can. 
Um, yeah. Although nowadays I do use Google Docs. Uh, it's because I always have my smartphone with me. I've transitioned to doing everything digitally now. No, I use my notes a ton of the time or I have like Google Docs or the Google Sheets in my phone that I've definitely used. Very handy. Do you have any projects the fans should be looking out for in the future? Oh, I actually am working on quite a few projects. Unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to talk about any of them. And I know that's a huge bummer. And I, I apologize for that. Well, uh, did you have anything that recently came out you can talk about then? Uh, I think the only one, I, th- I think this was already teased, but I am working on a Halloween themed game. Uh, this time it is related to the movie. Ooh. So I think that's the only one that <laughs> I can cool. really, really uh, talk about at the moment. But yeah, but there are quite a few projects that I'm working on with uh, other publishers that uh, I would I would love to be able to spill more more details because I'm just genuinely excited about them uh, but unfortunately I can't I can't discuss it yet until they're officially announced now nah, that's totally fine are you the kind of designer that likes to work with different publishers or do you typically stay with a few of the same I think I gravitate towards publishers that like to work closely with their designers uh, I know that the publishers have different methods for which they work with different designers. Uh, I, I know of publishers that really like to uh, take ownership of the design and do all the development in-house. Uh, and then there are publishers that, that like to work really closely with, the, with their designers. And I think I, I align myself a lot with the ones that like to work with their designers, have the designers involved with some of the minutiae and some of the... Um, product considerations so i i enjoy that kind of relationship it's perhaps it's because you know i do see them as like uh, i do have a sense of ownership and investment into those designs and i have a very strong product vision for it and i like to convey some of that to the publisher but at the same time i think publishers choose me more than i choose the publishers that is nice and i mean they know clearly that that you want some creative control And so I'm sure that's why they work with you. I'm guessing a publisher that wants to just take your baby and like raise it, probably not going to approach you or you're going to decide not to go with them. (laughs) I haven't been approached by those publishers, so you could very well be right. But I've also never had that kind of a relationship with the publisher yet. So I don't know how I would work under those conditions. Is that something you'd want to explore or not interested at all in? Uh, If it's, uh, I don't want to ever say no to any kind of opportunities. And I would always like to work with a publisher at least once um, just to get an experience and understand how they work, if for anything else, you know, for my own experience. So I don't think I would ever say no. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then I guess for our parting question, if you could slap your name on a game that was designed by someone else, what game would you want it to be? I think um, I'm suspecting that a lot of people probably said things like Magic the Gathering or Ticket to Ride. Uh, Neither of those uh, have been but, mentioned yet, but oh, keep going. Oh, that's, oh, that's interesting because you know, Magic the Gathering uh, is a game that I absolutely love. Uh, I, well, I have a love-hate relationship with it, so I absolutely love the game mechanically. Uh, but it's really just the how costly it is to keep up with it is the, the part that that is uh, that's the hate part of my relationship is that it is it is a very costly uh, hobby to keep up with oh yeah no i have friends that drop hundreds on cards and i'm just yeah. like nope i'm not playing with you if i get addicted it's gonna be a problem <laughs> and so then for anyone who wants to like reach out to you or follow you where can you be reached on like social media 
Oh, uh, I do apologize ahead of time here. Uh, I'm really bad at social media and uh, and keeping up with with that. Uh, but if if you don't mind the lack of engagement, uh, I'm usually uh, I do I do check Twitter once in a while. But I'm at Nesca Games on Twitter, and then on Facebook, I believe it's Facebook.com/slash Nesca Games. I believe so. Uh, so those are the the usual places to to reach me. Very cool. And then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds, and you can find me on social media on Twitter or Instagram at Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. And uh, hey, you know, thanks, Emerson, for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed. Uh, episode 33 yeah it was great talking century spice road it's still like one of my favorite games and honestly if it's not classified as an evergreen i feel like it will be thank you this has been another episode of game design unboxed inspiration to publication if you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts check out nodirectionpodcast.com join us next time